You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Um, hey, before we begin, so good to be with you. So good to be with you all. I've never been to the city of Charlotte. Um, what I've noticed about Charlotte that is different than Chicago is y'all have less garbage. We have lots of garbage in Chicago. We know where to put it on the streets so that y'all can see it. So how many of you have all been to Chicago? Anybody? Yeah, you've all been to Chicago. Is it a great city? Yeah, um, it's a great city for three months of the year. June through August, and then it becomes the coldest place on earth. And hey, by the way, before we begin, um, I just want to say something to Robin and Donna. Um, how many of y'all enjoyed that worship? Yeah, is that, is that what happens every week here? Wow. Wow. Um, Robin, Donna, uh, you know, like we were talking, and when we were having coffee, we were talking about the Church of Ephesus. And we're talking about different churches, uh, three different kinds of churches in the New Testament. We're talking about Antioch. We're talking about um, the Church of Jerusalem. And then we're talking about the Church of Ephesus. And um, if you read at the end of the Bible, there's a book called Revelation. And at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it starts with seven letters to churches. Uh, and before it does, um, it talks about seven golden lampstands. you remember that? And the thing that I want to say to you both, Rob and Donna, you have not let your lampstand go out. You've not. Bless you guys. You've not let the oil run out. The lampstand is still going. And I know that you may may look at something like, you may look at the church of Ephesus and you might think, well, you know, that is like a model for the, the church that we might want to be, of course, you know, the warnings in that letter notwithstanding. But when I look at the, those letters, I wonder if the letter to the church in Smyrna uh, might be a letter for you today uh, in this season. And I'm just going to read a little bit from it. Before we begin, sorry, by the way, I'm kind of having this conversation with Robin and Donna in front of all of you, Uh, but but, um, the church, to the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? By the way, did you know that your church has an angel? There's an angel for you, Robin. There's an angel for you, Donna. There's an angel of this church and for this church. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions, yet you are rich. I know about the slander. Do not be afraid. I tell you, the devil will put some of you to the test. And you will suffer persecution, but be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to this church. I just want to encourage you guys. The lampstand has not gone out. Bless you guys. Bless you guys. Well, uh, I'm so glad to be here. I know that you guys have been in a series called uh, Invisible Ink. Is that 
right? Is that the series or it's stories or something like that? Stories in formation. Sorry, I tried to listen to a bunch of messages before I got here. And if I get some of that wrong, I apologize. Remember, I'm good at disappointing expectations. So, um, and, and you've been talking about stories and you've been talking about how stories, how outside forces form the stories within us. How many of you know that the story within you is the most compelling thing that you can live out of, that we don't really live out of propositions or facts. You know, we don't, facts don't really inspire us, but stories do. We live into stories, right? And, and you heard this warning, you heard this warning from John Mark in the first week, you heard this warning that if you are not actively choosing the forces that form your story, then somebody probably is composing the story for you. You've heard that, right? And you heard, of course, Pastor Robin talk about finding our identity in the story of God. You heard Adam, my good friend Adam from the vineyard. I'm a vineyard pastor. We're good friends. Talk about lesser narratives and stories that are actually oppositional. You heard about how those stories can actually worm their way into our hearts. And somehow become part of the way that we make meaning in the world. But today I'd like to talk about something a little bit different. What do all good stories have in common? What do all good stories have in common? Anyone? Conflict, right? Redemption, right. But redemption comes after trouble, generally, right? If you look at any literary critics, I don't know if any of you are all literary critics here, but there is some creativity in this church, I believe. Yes? Many of you write stories. Many of you know that... that an ingredient of a good story is an initial sequence. This is how literary critics talk about it. There's like an initial sequence. And in the initial sequence, usually the hero is introduced to some kind of trouble or task, and they must wake, make their way through it. You know what I'm talking about, yes? So how many of you are avid readers or avid movie watchers or avid, like, um, I don't know, YouTube stories or something like that. I don't know, like YouTube. Um, I have, by the way, this doesn't have anything to do with this message, but I'm just curious. Um, would you raise your hand if you open YouTube every day? Yes. Okay. All right. Would you raise your hand if you open, (laughs) I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm just curious doing my own research here for the city of Chicago. Um, how, how many of you open YouTube at least once a week? Yeah. Interesting. All right. I don't, that doesn't have anything to do with this message, but anyway. Every story has conflict, yes? Every story has conflict. So, um, for instance, uh, so I'm in Chicago, and in Chicago we can mention things like this. I'm here in Charlotte, so if I mention the name of this story and it's a problem for you, I apologize, but Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Harry Potter, what's the central conflict in Harry Potter? Anyone? Yeah, Voldemort. He who must not be named, Voldemort, right? Voldemort presents itself as a character. I mean, some could argue that the central conflict of Harry Potter is Harry Potter's struggle not to become Voldemort, right? How many of you have read Cormac McCarthy? There's a book called Blood Meridian. The central conflict in Blood Meridian is the bald judge. You know, uh, how many of you are familiar with The Lord of the Rings? So, yes, yeah, so some of you are, like, super happy about that. I see you over there. Lord of the Rings, yes! Yes, Lord of the Rings, right? So, Lord of the Rings, uh, who's a fan of the movies? Okay, who thinks that the books are better than the movies? 
Yeah, right. That's the only right answer. Of course. Well, and there's a central conflict in the Lord of the Rings. And what's the central conflict? Well, the central conflict is Frodo himself. The central conflict is whether Frodo will give in to the ring. Yes? And of course, that conflict is personified in Gollum. How many of you love Gollum? Love you some Gollum, right? You know, I used to read those books as a kid and think, these books would be way better if this character was not in it. You know, but then I became to, began to appreciate it. Because would Frodo have become who he is in the scouring of the Shire without Gollum? Probably not, right? And here's the thing that I want to say today. And this might not be all of you. This might be some of you. Or you might actually have some of this attitude uh, baked into you. Because it's part of what it means to be a human today. Here's the problem that we face today. When it comes to trouble, when it comes to conflict, if conflicts are an essential ingredient to story, when it comes to conflict, we don't want to have anything to do with it. When it comes to trouble... We don't want to have anything to do with trouble. In fact, we don't think about going through trouble. We think about avoiding it. How many of you have ever like run into trouble and thought, wow, I should never do that again? You know, we don't think about trouble being like an essential element of our story. We think about conflict as being something that tests our story. Like if we have a good story, then we shouldn't have trouble. We shouldn't have conflict. Anybody think that way? I know that I do. And I've been a Christian for over 30 years. I think that, man, if I pick the right story, then the story shouldn't land me in trouble. Right? Uh, C.S. Lewis. I know that you're familiar with C.S. Lewis. This is what C.S. Lewis says about this, this predicament that we find ourselves in. By the way, nobody likes trouble, right? Nobody likes the way it makes us feel. Nobody likes the anxiety that comes from trouble. Nobody wants more trouble. Nobody wants to look foolish in trouble. Nobody wants the trouble that can fracture relationships. And so when trouble comes, modern people, people who live today think, man, I need to avoid it. I need to figure out a way that that won't ever happen again. And here's how C.S. Lewis framed this this problem. C.S. Lewis said this, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. And then he goes on to say for magic, which is sort of how he talks about how humankind thought their way through reality, you know, back in medieval times. For magic, uh, I know this is in the weeds, but I'm sort of Professor Weeds, and so if we get in the weeds, would you come along with me? Um, So, But anyway, for magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to, listen, this is really, really important, subdue reality to the wishes of men. So here's C.S. Lewis, uh, who was the first professor of the weeds, saying... Wise men of all, the cardinal problem had been a conformed soul to reality. But for the modern person or the person who lives today, uh, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. How to subdue reality to the wishes, wishes of men. And the way to do that then becomes a technique. So, the wise men of old were looking for wisdom. The modern person is looking for technique. We no longer seek to adapt our souls to reality. We seek to adapt reality to our souls. This is part of what it means to be a person alive today. 
And part of it has to do with technology. Now, I'm not a Luddite. I like my technology. But one thing that technology teaches us is it teaches us that we have lots more control over things than we actually do, right? How many of you know that your device, which promises wonders, actually controls you? Yes? And so here we go. We're going to get really in the weeds. And so... um, I'm much shorter than people seem to be here in Charlotte. Uh, but, so you might not see my head over the weeds, but I promise we'll come out and we'll, take a, we'll have a meal together. But let, let's go in the weeds for a moment and tell you, why is it that when it comes to stories, we don't want our stories to have trouble or conflict? Why is that? Well, it's because of a few reasons. But remember what John Mark said at the beginning of this series. What he said was he said that outside forces actually help us compose the story we live out, right? And outside forces could be good things. They could be our family. could be we form stories and meaning uh, in conversations around the dinner table with our children. How many of you know that if you have little kids, when you sit at dinner together, they're trying to make sense of reality. And part of the reason why you have dinner together is because you're trying to help them form their story. So even little conversations actually start to help build their idea of what it means to be alive and to be human in the world. Okay, so there's outside forces that are sometimes like really, really good. I mean, I think God intends for us to be formed somewhat by our family, by our churches. Part of what's happening today is by, or this series is you're getting your story formed. Story information, right? But many of you also, or all of you also know that there are other stories, other controlling narratives that exist in the world today that maybe aren't so helpful, as Adam talked about couple weeks ago. There's narratives that are oppositional, narratives that are lesser, right? Here's a narrative that I think informs the way that we think today. Global international capitalism. So, uh, by the way, um, I'm not telling you that I'm, I'm not telling you that I'm a communist. We're not going to talk about capitalism for 30 minutes today, much to probably Robin's relief. Um, But I do want to say this about capitalism. Capitalism makes us see the world in a certain way. How does it make us see the world? It makes us see the world as a bunch of products. So we see the world as a bunch of things that we can own. And here's the thing. It's really hard to tell the difference between a thing you can own and a story that you can own. Here's another story that is a controlling narrative. It's the story of... Individual exceptionalism. Anybody heard that before? How many of you are tired of hearing people say, individualism, it's the problem of our world, so we must drink milk. Anybody heard this story before? Individualism, which is the idea that the individual is the highest, the happiness of the the individual is the highest pursuit of all humankind. Remember, I told you we were in the weeds. Please stay with me. I promise we'll come out at some point. But here's the thing about individualism. I mean, if you do a cursory study of philosophy, you know um, that we had all sorts of ways of seeing the individual. We used to see the individual as social or political. So in other words, you didn't think of yourself um, as higher than your social group. You thought of your social group as higher than the individual self, right? That how, that's how we used to be. And then we moved philosophically to the economic self, Anybody familiar with that one? Anybody ever had a job where they said, you're worth this much money? That's the economic self. Like So, hey, by the way, um, looking at your experience, looking at the market, looking at like how much 
schooling you have, you're worth probably this much a year. Anybody ever had that conversation before and went, wait, really? $45,000 a year? Really? But somehow, um, it's become okay for us to say, well, souls are worth that much, selves are, selves are worth that much. Well, if you read philosophy, self has, become, has moved from sociopolitical to economic to now what we call the therapeutic self or the psychological self. Psychological self is this. Psychological self means that the inner state, the inner state where your heart is, whatever your heart feels, that is God. That's what the therapeutic self means. Part of what individualism means is that there is no higher good for a human being to be personally happy. That's what the therapeutic psychological self would actually say. And let me tell you why that's bad news. We're starting to merge out of the weeds. We're still in it. We're starting to merge out of it. But let me tell you why this is bad news. When your stories become commodities, in other words, when there are things that you can purchase and you can buy, what do you do with a thing that you don't like anymore? Anyone? Throw it away. Or you give it away. Maybe you'll like this. You don't? I don't really anymore, but you might. Why don't you throw that away? Uh, well, I just thought you might like it. This is your garbage. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but, but, but look, look, when we start thinking about stories as commodities, we can dump them when they don't serve us anymore. So if my story doesn't actually help me achieve my inner state of therapeutic happiness, then I can just kind of dump the story. And this is part of why C.S. Lewis is saying we can seek to bend reality to our own desires. Why would you think that we couldn't if the highest goal of every person is to be inner, inner, well, is to have inner happiness, right? And the flip side of this is that if we are our own gods and responsible for our own story procurement, I promise we're coming out of the weeds. This means that you're responsible for your own happiness. In other words, Part of what it means to be alive today is that it means that you are utterly and totally responsible for your own happiness. So not only is happiness your highest goal, it is your chief responsibility to procure it. How many of you have ever been, ever tried to make yourself happy? How long does that last? Or how many of you try to make yourself happy by acquisition. I'm going to buy something and I'm going to be happy for a little bit. Does that happen? I mean, it happens all the time, right? We try to make ourselves happy. How many of you know that happiness actually is this thing that is experienced in the presence of God and with other people? How many of you know that? Yes? I mean, I think these are things that are, are, are pretty clear. I know a professor at Yale in the great northeast who told me that the class he teaches, he teaches this class called The Life Worth Living. By the way, he's a, he's a really, really profound believer in Jesus. He loves Jesus and he teaches this class called The Life Worth Living. And what this class is about is this class is about all of these, the different ways that the world has tried to make meaning religiously, right? So he teaches about Buddhism. He teaches about all sorts of different, like he teaches about Islam. And then, I mean, they read sections of the Quran together, but they also teach about the Bible. And so this is his opportunity to introduce people to the living Jesus. And so he does it at Yale, believe it or not. Bastion of intellectualism 
He's teaching about Christianity. And here's the interesting thing he told me. He told me that all of his undergrads come in plagued with so much anxiety. They have so much fear. And the reason why they have anxiety is because they know or they think, I mean, they're fully bought into the therapeutic self. And so they think, man, I am the agent of my own happiness and I need this class to help me figure out how I can be happy. And so they come in because it's a burden that is too, too heavy to bear. You see, if you, if you follow C.S. Lewis's logic and you say, well, I'm going to buy into C.S. logic and I'm going to look for a technique, what that means is that you put yourself at the center. And Lewis is saying, no, come on over to the other side. Find rest. Find rest. Find rest. And so what I want to do today, I know that's a long introduction, but what I want to do today is I want to talk about what happens when conflict comes to our story. How can we find wisdom from the ancients to help us when trouble and conflict comes? Uh, how can we not do the nuclear option and say, this story doesn't work for me anymore, especially the story of Jesus, and try to find something else? Or try to find what we do today is an amalgamation of stories. We take stories from all over. We put them all together and somehow they make this soup and it works for us for a little bit. But we know it's only temporary. What, is, what does the ancient wisdom have to tell us about what we do when trouble comes? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. Are you with me? Okay, I know we went into the weeds. We're coming out of the weeds. And let's have a meal together. And let's look at King David. King David tells us this in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, you're going to see in Psalm 27 that King David is no stranger to trouble and to conflict. He's got lots of it. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. And here's the most important verse that we're going to look at today. And it's the verse that, that if we can, I'd like us to all read together. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spotting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Psalm 27. It's the wisdom of the ancients. Conforming the soul to reality, not reality to our desires. And here's what King David's solution is to the day of trouble. And it's utterly remarkable. Let's read this verse together again. Could we? Thank you. I mean, I can't do this to my church in Chicago. They'll be like, we're not doing that. Um, They're like enlightened people in Chicago. When I tell them, maybe you should consider this, I'll be like, I'll take it under advisement. But anyway, here we go. Verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So what do we do? When our stories inevitably come, come, come across conflict and trouble, what do we do? We dwell in the house of the Lord and we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We dwell in the house of the Lord and we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that's what I want to talk about today as we close our time together. What does it mean to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Um, I heard one commentator and preacher say it this way. It means to take pleasure in the perception of the attributes, the character, the deeds of God, which is pretty surprising, isn't it? Wouldn't you think that David would be saying, man, arm me up in the day of trouble. Rescue me from the day of trouble, even though those things are important. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. When my enemies are piling up, I want to get to the temple and gaze on the beauty of the Lord. So take the non-essential, the not useful almost, take pleasure, which almost seems like leisure. Take pleasurable leisure in the perception of the Lord. It's surprising that David doesn't say, man, get me out of here. Get me an army. No, in the day of trouble, beset on every side by enemies, David is saying, I need to gaze on beauty. And you know this is true, don't you? How many of you have been saved by song? And, you know, I'm I'm the son of Korean immigrants, if that's not obvious. Uh, Um, and, uh, and so what that means is that means that in my home, we ate Korean food growing up, which I basically thought was the worst. I was like, you know, like we'd be eating Korean food and they'd be like, well, we want to figure out, we don't want you to take like kimchi and garbi and whatever that to school. And I'm like, okay. And so we'll give you a bologna sandwich. And I thought, man, this is way better, you know? Um, and so I lived like trapped between two cultures. You know, we'd speak, you know, Korean in the home and, and then we'd go to Korea on occasion, and I didn't really speak Korean because my parents were like, we don't want anybody to think that you're Asian. I'm like, well, I mean, that's kind of hard, but we just don't want you to think that you're Asian. We want you to be smarter. We want you to speak English without a trace of Korean accent, and so we're not going to teach you Korean. But then they go to Korea. I go to Korea for months at a time um, during the summer, and then it would be so awkward because I couldn't speak Korean. I could kind of hear what they were saying. My relatives would be saying in Korean, why can't you speak Korean? And I would know that. I would understand that. I was like, we wish you could speak Korean. And I'd be sitting there like totally miserable thinking like, oh man, I wish I could speak Korean. Um, and, uh, and so um, I'm like literally like hanging on my parents because I'm like, I, I don't understand anything that's really happening unless I'm with my parents. And they, I, they, you know, my parents have to speak for me. And of course they couldn't be with them all the time. And so it was always really awkward. And so I like hide out, hide away. I mean, that was like, 
I mean, it was really painful for him. I was like a little kid or junior high or high school or whatever and very insecure, can't speak Korean. They're all saying, why can't he speak Korean? I mean, and, and actually in Korea, if you're a Korean American and you can't speak Korean, they have like a curse word for it, by the way, in which I learned by experience. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like feel super awkward and what do I do? What do I do? And so one day we went to the store and, um, we could buy some CDs. Anybody remember CDs? So I bought a CD because I heard that it was, I heard that it was good. I still have the CD jacket today because it's in English and in Korean. Uh, and, uh, it was by a band called Radiohead and it was a, it was a record called OK Computer. And um, I had never really heard of Radiohead before. I was like, that's kind of a weird name, but I heard this record was good. And so then I met Walkman. Do you guys all remember Walkmans? You know, like it was like orange or yellow because it was a sport Walkman because CDs would skip. And according to the sport Walkman, it wouldn't skip, but it did. You know what I'm talking about. So I'm listening to OK Computer, and I'm listening to this song called Let Down. I'm listening to Let Down over and over and over and over and over again. It was just this wall of sound. It was really beautiful. And it really helped me. It really, really helped me. I would, I would steal away, uh, and I would go lie down in my cousin's bedroom, and would just listen to OK Computer. And you know how when you listen to records today, or records back then, the whole record was meant to be kind of like a story. And I would listen to Paranoid Android, and then I, I can't remember what the second second song was, but I would just listen to these songs, and I'd get to Let Down, and Let Down felt like, it just felt like something was actually happening. And here's the thing, it really helped me. It was really useful to me. It was really like, I don't think I could have made it through that summer without OK Computer. But I didn't go to it because it was useful. I went to it because it was beautiful. And I think that's part of what David is saying. David is saying, take pleasure in the perception of the Lord because God is an end in and of himself. God is the beginning and the end. And what does that mean? That means that he created all things and all things that he made, he called very good, but he also, he's the end of all things. He's the reason for all things. You know, and I went to OK Computer not to save me. I went to OK Computer because they made a great record. But in the end, it was really helpful to me. And I think that's part of what David is saying. Part of what David is saying is, man, I'm going to go to the Lord because it's be- he's beautiful to me. And I'm only going to go to the Lord because he's beautiful, because he's an end in and of himself. And, and then he leaves and he's like, man, I feel better. So he went to the Lord not because... The Lord was useful to him. He went to the Lord because the Lord was beautiful to him. How many of you know that in the day of trouble, what you need is you need wonder? In the day of trouble, you don't need the Lord to be useful to you. You need the Lord to be beautiful to you. How many of you know that when you go to something, because it's useful, you exploit it? But when you go to something because it's beautiful, you adore it. How many of you know that when you go to an art museum and you see like a really famous piece of art and I, yes, we can interrogate museums and I don't know if you all do that around here, but we're interrogating everything nowadays. But what do they do? Like I went to the, I, I was in Paris and I went to the Louvre and I saw Mona Lisa. And I'm like, where is Mona Lisa? Because anybody ever been to the Louvre? It's enormous. It's like, it's huge. 
So you could go to Paris for two weeks and just do the Louvre. That's it. You go to Musée d'Orsay for one day, and then you go to Louvre for the rest of it. And you're like, where is Mona Lisa? And then you find Mona Lisa, and you find it because there's a crowd of people standing around it. And what do they do to the Mona Lisa? Well, they put stanchions around it. And what do they also do? They, what do they also say? Anybody been to a f- museum and seen a famous work of art? What do they say? No flash photography, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to preserve it. That's what we do to things that are beautiful, that we adore. We don't exploit them. And how many of you know that when you take something beautiful and you exploit it, you debase it? You profane it? I mean, this is the heart of pornography. What is pornography but debasing of a thing, objectifying a thing that's actually beautiful? And David is saying, man, what you need in the day of trouble is not to use the Lord. You need to adore the Lord. And by the way, if it's adoration, then that means that story formation and story curation is more about falling in love than about choice. Let me say that again. If in the day of trouble, what you need is the beauty of the Lord, part of what David is saying is David is saying, man, when it comes to story information, it's way more about falling in love than it's about choice. It's way more about falling in love. Way more about, this is why, by the way, why David says, my heart says of you seek his face, not my brain says of you or my uh, I guess my brain, whatever, you know, but my heart actually says if you seek his face. Desire, man, desire sits at the center of formation. Uh, I, I, I like had this conversation with this person recently about how he came to the Lord and he was saying, man, I listened to this guy named Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you guys know Jordan Peterson and Jordan Peterson helped me to see that maybe there was something transcendent. And then I made some decisions because Jordan Peterson didn't quite cut it. And then I realized, man, my, the faith of my... Childhood is probably my faith, and I came to a rational decision based on that. Well, that's not me at all. Man, I got swept off my feet. I mean, I fell in love with the Lord who loved me first. And I think that's what sits at the center of story. I think that's what David is trying to tell us. He's trying to say, man, this is the kind of story that not just is the story for your head, but it's a story that will consume your whole heart. And by the way, it's not just beauty, not just like plain beauty. It's not, I mean, like not that any beauty is plain. This is not just about getting out and experiencing God's say wherever you like. It's not just about going out in nature or going out in the town square. I mean, even though, does Charlotte have a town square? <laughs> you know, like uh, Chicago sort of has that it's called Millennium Park. Um, but it's not just about like taking in something beautiful. It's about the beauty of the Lord. Remember, he says, the beauty of the Lord. Remember, he also says, man, I want to dwell in your house. Beauty of the Lord. My heart says, if you seek his face. And by the way, what does he mean by that? He means, I want to be in your presence. Anytime you see in the Hebrew face, anytime you see in the Hebrew, like anytime you see presence in the, in the English Bible, a lot of times well, that is translated from face. I want to seek your face. I want to see your face. I want to see your face. So there's a particularity to beauty. It's not just any song or any movie or any work of art or any person. It's specific to the person of the Lord in his house. It's the face of God. And as Pastor Robin told us, the face of God is the face of Jesus. Man, this is not just, not just, you know, like you can't like, you can sort of experience the beauty of the Lord when you see Mona Lisa. You can sort of see it. But David understands 
that in the temple of the Lord is the glory of the Lord. And how many of you know we experienced the glory of the Lord this morning? I mean, we experienced the Shekinah, didn't we? How many of you felt the heaviness as we began to sing? How many of you come to, come to worship sometimes and you're like, man, that's the last thing I want to do is sing. But then you can't help it. Your arms start to inch up. Someone next to you's arms are up and then you think, well, I have permission now. You know what I'm talking about? What is that? Well, David understands that there is an importance to the house of the Lord because the house of the Lord is the carrier of the glory. It's a place that you can see the beauty of the Lord. It's not just Jesus, but it's Jesus' story. It's the story of you and me being saved and being redeemed. Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. You have saved us. And we come to you for your beauty, and we find ourselves delivered. It's the Lord Jesus who makes all things beautiful in his time. It's the Lord Jesus who's taking our ashes and given us beauty instead. It's the Lord who is debased and profaned for us on the cross so that we could be restored to our beauty. Made in the image of God, after the image of the heavenly man, Jesus himself, this is our destiny. We are meant to live extraordinary lives of beauty because of Jesus. Because of Jesus and his story. And by the way, Jesus says this another way. So we looked at the ancient wisdom from Psalm 27. What does Jesus tell us? Jesus tells us this in another way. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. He's like, man, your eyes are so important. The eye is the lamp of the body. What are you looking at, church? Are you gazing on the beauty of the Lord? What are you looking at? And, 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 and by the way, Jesus is saying, yeah, man, like fix your gaze. Look, look, look. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are filled with light, then your whole body will be filled with light. If your eyes are filled with darkness, man, your whole body, how great is that darkness? And then he goes on to say, in your day of trouble, he says it this way, do not worry about your life. This is what Jesus tells us. Jesus is like totally agreeing with King David. He's saying, man, fix your gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And he's saying, man, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink about your body, what you wear is not life more than these useful things. And then what does he say after it? He says, look. Right? Look at the birds of the air. And then remarkably, like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And here, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek. I need to be in the temple and I need to look. And here's Jesus saying, man, look, look, look at the birds of the air. Well, where are the birds of the air? A place near your altar, Lord Almighty. So would you tune your gaze? So the funny thing is, our world would teach us that we need a technique and we need another story. We live in like the applied science world. And what that basically means is that we test our stories as if they were hypotheses. And when, we, when trouble comes, we say, well, that experiment didn't work. I need a new one. But David is saying, nope, 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 no, 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 please. No, get in the house of the Lord. Gaze in the beauty of the Lord. Take in the gaze. And you will find that in your adoration, 
you are delivered. So, we're in this series, Stories, Formation. When I, when I think about formation, I think about habits. And so, I'm here, I'm here this week, and I leave. And so, I'm going to give you some homework. Um, because this is Charlotte and not Chicago. And if I did this in Chicago, people would be like, whatever. But maybe in Charlotte, one of you will take it up. But I want to give you like three habits. Three habits, particularly as it relates to story and beauty and the beauty of the Lord. Um, here's what I want to I give you three habits. The first, from Psalm 27. How do we relocate ourselves in the story of God? How do we reform our stories so that they line up with his story? How, why is beauty so essential? Well, because precisely because it's not. Um, here are the three habits. The first thing is this. You need beauty. You need it. This will be the easiest practice that you do this week. Would you make it your practice this week to read something beautiful? Would you make it your practice this week to watch a film that's beautiful? To read a poem that's beautiful? To listen to music that's beautiful? And by the way, that's not all that I'm going to ask you to do. After you do that, would you thank the Lord for it? Because see, here's the thing about beauty. Beauty points beyond itself, right? How many of you have that experience? You've seen something beautiful and you thought, maybe there is a God. Anybody ever experienced that before? Why is that? Well, because, because everything beautiful reflects the beauty of the Lord. And so anything beautiful has as its reference point the Lord himself. And so would you take in something beautiful this week? Would you read a work of fiction purely for the pleasure in it? And then would you thank the Lord for it? Okay, but it's not just beauty, right? You need beauty of the Lord. Um, and you remember this story, Mary and Martha's home. Do you remember this story? Martha was distracted by all the preparations. She had a really important house guest. It was Jesus, right? And then, so she goes and complains because Mary's not helping. Many of you with kids know this, right? We've got to clean the house. And you're not helping. Child one, child two, child three. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, what does Jesus actually say to, to Martha? She says, he says this. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So few things are needed, or indeed only one. Wow, kind of strange, right? But even Jesus knew the truth of Psalm 27. And so you've probably heard Pastor Robin or other pastors stand up here and say, you should pray and you should read your Bible. And you think, man, I've been told that since I was a kid. And I here want to give you another reason for doing it. Because what if in doing that, you're like Mary? So could you take up your Bible and could you pray again? That's the second thing. And finally, the third thing is that you need the church. Remember what David says. David says, man, in the beauty, the beauty of the Lord, where? In the house of the Lord. So you all are here in church, so this doesn't really apply to you, but come back next week. You know, here's the thing. Uh, the story of God is not a story that you read on pages. It's a story that you live out. As, Tom, as Thomas was telling us, you know, character is action. So, so Stanley Harawas, this great guy from Duke, I mean, this is a pacifist, uh, Anabaptist, he basically says, man, the liturgy or worship is more important than propositions or creeds. How many of you know that's true? 
And some of you are going like, okay, three habits. I'm only going to pick one. That's fine. Only pick one. But if you can, pick all three. Pick all three. Pick all three. Gaze on the beauty of the Lord. All right, can we stand? Let's all stand. And can I ask that beautiful worship team to come back up? Y'all did such a good job today. Could you? Could I just ask you to come up? And I'm a vineyard guy. I don't know how you do all this. So if I make a mistake here, I'm sure they'll tell me afterward. But and what I like to do is I like to pray for three groups of people today. The first group of people that I love to pray for is maybe you're here and you're like, I don't buy anything that that Asian guy just said up there. I don't buy anything at all. What I, one thing that I would like you to perhaps consider is maybe David was right. And maybe there is a film that has come over our eyes that has made it really hard to see the beauty of the Lord. You know, sometimes that film is cynicism. Sometimes that film is hurt. Sometimes that film is trouble. And I just want to ask you, if a film has come, come over your eyes and it has become hard to see the beauty of the Lord, the Spirit can help you in your weakness. He helps me. He can take the scales off of your eyes, just like he did to Paul when Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus. The scales can come off our eyes. The Spirit can actually do that. That's the first group of people. So if that's you, I don't know what you all do, but you can come on up and we can pray for you. Here's the second second. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, if story formation is about falling in love and if stories are about adoration, I need to fall in love again with the God who loves me. And if you just need a fresh touch of the love of God, man, I know that the Lord loves to do that. And so why don't you come up? The second group. Third group, finally. Maybe you're here today and you actually have trouble. And you're like, in my trouble, I'm about ready to give up. And I've come today because this is my last resort. If that's you, the Lord will meet you. And so I don't know. You've got some teams up here. If the teams can come on up. Um, If you want to receive prayer for any one of these things, would you come on up? And then one more thing. Uh, This is just something that I feel like the Lord told me. Uh, This is the last thing. Okay, three groups of people, but the last thing. Some of you are here in this room, and you're called to pastoral ministry. And this is just something that I feel like the Lord told me. If that's you, would you come up and I'd love to pray for you. All right. And then I'll ask the team if you guys can lead us in a song. And if you want prayer, come on up for anything. Or if somebody's next to you, you can even ask them to pray for you. But bless you guys. May you gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And in that gaze, may you be delivered. May you be delivered. been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.